All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of Limitless MD. I'm your host, Vikram Ryan. Today, I have Dr. Pada. He is a, a remarkable Renaissance man in medicine. He's a physician. He's a board-certified anesthesiology, addiction, and interventional pain. Not only that, but he's understood the complexities of metabolic health, and he's created a strategy to not only work on addiction and pain, but also reverse obesity, as this is all part of the same concept of inflammation. And if that was enough, he's already a published author in, in books related to metabolic health. But on top of that, he's learned finance, he's learned capital, he's learned construction, and he's created a company called Red Red Pill Capital uh, to help physicians invest and, and really go beyond and achieve financial freedom. What if you could reclaim hours of free time each week, create legacy building wealth, and devote more energy to your passion projects without giving up on your career as a life-saving MD? My name is Vikram Raya, functional cardiologist, high-performance coach, and real estate expert. And I'm here to give you the tools, strategies, and solutions you need to transform your life so you can unlock your limitless potential and achieve greatness, all the while freeing up your precious time. Welcome to Limitless MD. Let's dive in. Thank you again, Dr. Gurpreet Pada, for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think you're you're one of those doctors who's trying to sound alarms to physicians that they need to step out of their shells and see more of the world and be exposed to things and potentially take back control of of their financial freedom can you uh dig into that a little bit yeah so here's the thing if you look at physicians and you look at what happens to them over their careers they start off and they're sharp they're smart they got into medical school they they graduate from medical school they're at the top of their game and what they do in order to do that is they give up a lot of their lives and they get through residency and they get through their their practice. And at the end of their lives, you would think that these people who were so smart and so brilliant and had made so much money would die with incredible wealth. But here's the reality. They end up being just as bankrupt as everybody else. They end up dying just as poor as the poorest people in their practice. And they wonder what happened to their lives. And they were so smart. And yet, and they were at the top of their class. And yet the people at the middle and the bottom of their class that were before medical school end up doing better than them. How is it that the people that are the salespeople and the mechanics and, and the people doing simple stuff that's not technically complicated, how is it that they're doing so well when they retire? And the fundamental issue is that we never really learn about money. We don't because money is a taboo. As a physician, it's a dirty thing to talk about. And it's something that our medical school education never prepares us for. And because we've taken a Hippocratic oath, we think that that's all we should know. And then society will take care of us. And I'm here to tell you that that's not true. Society doesn't give a rat's ass what happens to us as we get older. And as we go through our careers, we make a lot of money. There's no doubt about it. Physicians are some of the best paid people in the world. But the problem is we don't hold on to our money. And the problem is we are so, and I, I hate to use this word, but it, we're so enamored with what we know that we don't continuously learn about the things that we don't know. Why do you think that uh, 
their financial future is sort of on the back burner and they're just worried about, you know, getting getting into practice, seeing more patients and maybe getting a high income. We're rewarded with a high income. And we intrinsically know that if we if we save people's lives, we're going to get paid because we're doing something important. But the problem is you have to be a little bit narcissistic to be a really good physician because you have to have this self-assuredness that you're making the right decision. That narcissism, though, seeps into our other areas. And we, for some odd reason, don't recognize that we don't have those skills. We don't have those other financial skills. We never learned them. So we make assumptions that are just totally inaccurate. And, and, and so that's, that's what gets us. Um, and then we rely on people because we have that little bit of narcissism. It's easy to hurt a narcissist. If you compliment a narcissist, they'll listen to you. So that's why we have these sales reps that come into our offices that compliment us and tell us what a great doctor we are. That's why those people will end up with a ton of money because they've developed that social skill of reading you. Um, and so, so you have to be very careful and you have to self-educate. So, you can't rely on these people to give you accurate information. I want to switch gears, uh, Dr. Grapreet. So tell me about, um, obviously you've created a, an amazing medical practice, but tell me about the skills you've acquired over your years that were non-medical that have really set you up for success. So I actually started off non-medical, but I, I went to medical school early. I went to medical school when I was 17. Um, I, like many physicians, um, you know, I'm focused in on whatever I want to do and I get really deep into it, but I have ADD. So they gave me a little bit of advantage because I kept trying to do other things other than what I was supposed to be doing. So I learned construction when I was 14. I learned all kinds of crazy stuff. I started rehabbing houses by the time I was 16 and I was hiring crews to do that. By the time I got into a six-year med program when I was 17, um, I was well on my way and I was just enamored with it. So I never gave up that. Um, I ended up rehabbing on the south side of Chicago while I was in surgery residency. And so, you know, it, it's I, I kept pushing because I knew that's something that I wanted to have a backup plan. I knew that medicine was my passion. I knew that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to take care of people. I loved physiology. I loved anatomy. I loved the feeling that I could save somebody and help them and do the right thing for them and, and come up with the right diagnosis and the treatment algorithm. But I also knew right away that I didn't want to rely on other people giving me direct advice and not having educated myself about it. So I ended up, eventually I ended up getting an MBA. I mean, I ended up getting an MBA in finance, almost left medicine and worked with Jack Welsh at GE Capital um, and did arbitrage for a while, uh, just currency arbitrage, just to see. And I realized that it was so boring, but it gave me additional financial skills. Um, and I've always, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a kid from North India. I was born after partition and I lived in North India and I came to the U.S. when I was like, I think, eight or nine. So I wore a turban and I went to an all black school and I was an outcast because I didn't speak English and I was wearing a turban. And then eventually, by the time I was in high school, I was in a white school and I still wore a turban and I was still an outcast. So it gave me an opportunity to study these people. And so I was always an outsider, which gave me the perspective to think about things long term. Um, and so I think those are, you know, I, I think that the, the harshness of of having gone through that 
um, has really allowed me to do things that I wouldn't have otherwise done. It's given me a different perspective because I grew up in North India, and that's an area of crisis at that moment and has been subsequently as well. And so one of the areas I ended up specializing in was crisis investing and learning about international currency exchanges, crisis investing, and things of that nature. Tell me about this word crisis in, uh, investments or crisis uh, and sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, entrepreneurship. Yeah. So I started, a, I've, I've probably started and, and run, operated and sold over probably 50 companies. Um, I'm a, I'm a quick start. Like I, if I, if I can think of something and I think I can get started with it, I'm going to, I'm going to go off and try it. So I started a company when I was in my twenties. Um, and what it did was that I went around the world. And I would go to areas and I would buy up household artifacts that people wanted to throw away. And I was always in interested in arbitrage, take something that's cheap and sell it somewhere else where it's expensive. So I would, I went to Mongolia and bought some yurts and um, sold them in Los Angeles. I bought the yurts, a container full of my, I've packed uh, I'm it. Sorry, I'm, I'm unfamiliar with a yurt. What is that? A yurt is a giant, giant tent made out of okay. leather and the Mongolian uh, tribesmen keep them for one or two seasons and they throw them away. Oh, wow. And so they, they, they're getting rid of it. And I looked at it, I said, you know what? People in Los Angeles are gonna be silly enough to buy this and put this in their backyard. So I bought these for a couple hundred bucks, transported them and sold them for $35,000 each. Wow. I uh, made a fortune. That's an arbitrage. So I was always interested in arbitrage, but I also would go to these countries and I, I lived in New Guinea. I lived in Papua New Guinea and I lived with headhunters doing tropical disease. So I was always interested in these conflict zones. Um, and eventually I realized that wherever you had massive conflict is where you have your most opportunity. So crisis investing is looking around the world, identifying the areas of maximum crisis and asking yourself, how do you make a silk purse out of this sow's ear? What, what is it that's going on there that is going to, at the end, result in an amazing outcome? And so you always, I always look at things and wonder, you know, what, what's going to happen in urban St. Louis? What's going to happen in Turkey? What's going to happen at, at the border between India and Pakistan? What's going to happen in Afghanistan? I always look forward. Um, and so to give you an example, a concrete example of how that worked is in 2019, September. Um, you remember that uh, COVID starts in March of 2020 in the United States. But 2019 in September, I own five restaurants in St. Louis, and the, one of them seats 665 people. It's a large restaurant, it's barbecue, and, um, and we, we, we serve pork, um, we serve meat, it's a barbecue restaurant. And one night I, do, I was doing analysis and I realized that the repo market flipped, the repo market crashed. The so, repo, what is that? The repo, re, uh, the repo market is the open currency exchange where the Federal Reserve buys up currency okay. and there was it went no bid. So that meant that people were not willing to trust the open market and they they were holding on to their currency and it crashed. It usually when that occurs, you know that the financial crisis is coming three to six months later. That's just from my business background. And so I knew something had gone wrong. And but the economy looked good, and but the repo market crashed, which is really odd. And then as I'm looking around, I notice that there's a nitric oxide plume coming out of China. And it, you can see it on the Google heat map. And it's a very high concentration of nitric oxide. I also know that nitric oxide is usually seen in areas where you're burning biological waste. 
So using two pieces of data, we've got an impending financial crisis coming and we're burning biological waste. I made the misassumption that they must be burning pig bodies or cow bodies. And what it is, is they've probably got some sort of pandemic or epidemic of, of cows or pigs. So it's going to increase my pork cost. And thinking that, you know, we've already got this epidemic coming. This is two or three sources. Maybe we shouldn't be in the restaurant business. Put the restaurants up for sale in the next week, sold them all, kept the real estate, sold the restaurants, and then sat back. I started to do more due diligence and started contacting people in China, friends, and I've got friends in Malaysia and Singapore, and they it was real quiet. So I went out to LA during Chinese New Year and went to the airport at Chinese New Year just to meet people and just talk to them. I happened to be in the airport anyway. And everybody that got off those planes from China, normally they would mill around in Chinese New Year and they would buy things from the stores. These people were getting off the planes. They were terrified and they were all wearing masks and they were running out of the airplanes and going straight into the city. So I knew something bad happened. I didn't know what it was, but I knew something bad. So we felt like we'd made the right decision. And then a month later, it should hit the fan. Everything hit. And then we knew, realized what had been going on. So, so crisis investing I'm is taking limited data, extrapolating it out and taking a concrete action to get ahead of it. So let's talk about crisis investing because... Uh... I'd love to get your take on our current situation. So as if you're listening to this, this is March of 2023. Uh, obviously, the, the the Fed super hawkish tightening rates to the point where, you know, people are starting to feel it definitely in the commercial real estate realm as well as others. And then we've seen the, the collapse of uh, Silicon Valley SVB. Bank and then maybe Signature. Um, tell me now with that same type of analysis and future looking stance that you've just shared with us, which is first I was, it was, it was a great story. And then two, it was just interesting pieces of data that you're able to assimilate. So I'm really curious to see what you have to say about what's going on now. So we created the SVB crisis. We did this on purpose. What we did was we told these banks that they had to hold a certain amount of reserve and we told them to hold it in federal treasury in treasuries. And then we set the rate for them at a low rate initially, and they've got 10-year bonds. So they've got 10-year bonds that, and bonds are, the valuation of a bond is based upon the interest rate you're going to get. And then the end result is, if the current interest rate is much higher than the interest rate that the bond pays, then the future value of the bond decreases. So here's what we did. We told these people to buy bonds. And they bought the bonds because that was their reserve. The reason why they had so much free capital is because we gave the banks a bunch of free capital through the customers. And that was because we printed a bunch of money. That's where our inflation comes from. So here we are giving them money, then telling them to invest in these bonds, paying them a low rate. They're investing actively in the bonds, thinking they're getting a decent rate. It's better than the market. And so they think they're getting a decent rate. As we bring the interest rate ups, if we bring the interest rate up, all of a sudden there's a delta between what they were getting one and a half to two percent and the five percent that the current interest rate is. So the future value of that bond just dropped by 20 percent. So now they're underwater. That's issue one. That's one major issue. So they were no longer capitalized like they were. And they have the best capital in the world, we think, which is the US dollar. So that's one issue. And that's not the only issue, though. The other bigger issue is we're about to de-dollarize. 
the, the world is going to de-dollarize. There's not a doubt in my mind that the U.S. currency will be one of several basket currencies that we will trade in. Right now, the U.S. is the primary currency. And everybody assumes that we have this primary currency and it will always be that way. No, it will not. The British pound was the currency 80 years ago. And before that, it was, I think it was the gilder. Um, and so currencies change over time. Um, and we have had an exorbitant ability to print money and not have productivity. See, our major export is US dollars. Most other countries export hard goods with using labor. What we do is we print currency and ship it over the, all over the world. And our major dollar, our our cost of a hundred dollar bill is only about eighteen cents or thirteen cents. We can make those all day long, and everybody wants those U.S. dollars, so they're willing to trade with us. But that's not going to be the case long term um, because we've overstayed our welcome and our productivity has gone down. Now we were we were selling a lot of oil. We stopped that. Um, the thing that's maintaining the dollar as the primary reserve currency still is basically our military. If anything happens or, or our military looks like it's going weak or there's an emergent technology that comes about that defeats the ability of the military to function effectively, then we de-dollarize immediately. So those threats, the crisis threat that's available, if you look forward, is it'll be Mach 10 plus missiles that can hit anywhere in the world um, in a matter of you know, you could mock 10 all the way around the world in three hours, or you can mock 10 station geostationary and hit any city in the world in a matter of three minutes. And you can't defend against that. So that is the technology that will leapfrog and change our position as a military power. And that will lead to de-dollarization. So that's issue two. There's a third issue. The third issue is that while the rest of the world, uh, especially the emerging countries, are so busy um, trying to be productive, they've infiltrated our university systems and created a system where people are too busy, worried about their own classification and too busy inwardly staring at their belly button. If you go on TikTok in China, it's about education. It's about math questions. It's about physics. It's about intelligent conversations with other people and learning. You go on TikTok in the United States and it's about what's your gender and what color hair are you going to wear and all of these other factors that really aren't meaningfully productive long term. And that's not meaning it's not important for people, but it's not productive as in terms of a GDP issue. It's not a capita issue. So that's issue three. And that correlates closely with SVB Bank's failure. The majority of trustees on SVB's board, the majority of them have a different agenda. Their agenda was never to make a ton of money and be intellectual about it. Their agenda, if you look at all the trustees and you look at what their agenda was, their agenda was more, um, more about equality and egalitarianism in, in the population. And that shouldn't be the purpose of corporations. The purpose of the corporation should be to make money for the stake, for the shareholders, for the, for the stakeholders and to create value. Um, and so they were very pro-ESG, which I'm not anti-ESG, but I think that um, environmental governance and, and structural changes um, 
should be on the basis of what's best for the company, not necessarily what's a particular person's agenda is. So that I think those are the main issues. Uh, let's let's. I mean that that, that was a that was an in depth analysis, and and I was surprised that you went in so many different directions because I didn't realize that there's so many geopolitical events that were beyond just finances that have uh, caused the implosion of that bank. Yeah. So um, I, I think that was uh, that was truly uh, layered. And I, I love how you think completely outside the box and you're definitely a novel thinker. And I think it's your years of sort of doing idea synergies and idea, you know, uh, sort of creating concoctions of ideas from different fields that, that led to this sort of novel thinking. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Limitless MD. If you found value from this episode, I encourage you to share this episode with a friend and let me know by leaving a review. For more information, make sure you check out the links in the show notes below or simply visit VikramRaya.com. So until next time, my friends, be phenomenal.